The belief that the grass is greener on the other side has taken root in the hearts and imaginations of many young people across Africa over the past few years, not least of all in the Maghreb, where polls and protests, blood and guns have failed to deliver the change many have sought. As hope fades, it's the boats and what lies beyond that offer renewed hope, the dream of a better life. In this week's episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy, we take a look at current trends in irregular migration from North Africa. As Tunisia and Algeria register record numbers of irregular departures in the midst of a global pandemic, we ask who is on the move and why. And we examine the role social media has come to play in migration trends in the region. You're listening to Africa and the Global Illicit Economy from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Lindy Mtongana. 2019 was an historic year for both Tunisia and Algeria. In a protest movement referred to as the Revolution of Smiles for its peaceful nature, Algerians took to the streets to press for political reform, which led to the ousting of longtime president Abdelaziz Bouteflika, offering hope to youth for the future of their nation. Then, in Tunisia, the unexpected election of Qais Sayed fueled hope that the economic and political situation within the country might change. A year on, political wrangling, corruption, economic depression and unemployment continue to fuel discontent. If there was one single factor indicating a decline in hope, it might be this. In July 2020 alone, more Tunisian youth were intercepted attempting to irregularly migrate to Europe than in all of 2019. Matt Herbert is a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. The protest movement in Algeria that was responsible for catalyzing the removal of President Bouteflika. I think that his exit from the scene led to a tremendous amount of hope by youth that otherwise were quite pessimistic about their options in present-day Algeria. They gave the country another chance. And given the political dynamics that have evolved since that point, the ebbing of hope on the part of youth that were active participants in the protest movement, that their efforts would actually lead to real and systemic change, you've seen rather a return to irregular migration northwards. It's much the same in Tunisia. Tunisia has confronted significantly more dramatic economic difficulties than Algeria. What you did find last fall was that the unexpected election of President Kaysay really led to a degree of hope amongst youth that he would be able to do things differently. He would have the option or the opportunity to be able to drive through reforms and manifestly change the situation in a way that all other post-revolutionary leaders had not been able to do. And I think that what we saw at the beginning of this year was perhaps a recognition that, in fact, despite the best intentions of the new president, his ability to significantly impact the situation, especially the economic situation, has been quite limited. And so, again, migration started to pick up because of that. Matt, how has this manifested in numbers compared to previous years? This is one of the most striking things that we're seeing in 2020 to date. 
July up through the 27th, we've seen Tunisian authorities intercept 1,786 irregular migrants on their coasts and immediately off of it. And the vast majority of these are, are Tunisian nationals. Now, it's tempting to look at this as simply an oscillation in enforcement with increasing enforcement leading to increasing arrests. But if you look across the Mediterranean to Italy, where most departures from Tunisia end up, you see a similar surge in numbers. So over the course of this month, you've seen Italian authorities disembark 3,728 Tunisian irregular migrants and an unknown number of others from sub-Saharan Africa that left from Tunisia. Now, in comparison, last year, in all of 2019, Italian authorities disembarked 2,654 Tunisians. But over the course of the entire year, January through the end of July, we're at about 4,200 irregular migrants that have been apprehended. And this compares to roughly the same number that we saw apprehended in all of last year by Tunisian authorities. And so to see these sorts of numbers emerge in periods and seasons when it's very uncommon to see significant migration breeds a bit of a potential that if these trends are to be sustained into the fall, we could see extremely high numbers starting to embark north during that traditional period of irregular migration. But what about the timing of this surge in movement? Why are we seeing increasing levels of irregular migration in the middle of a global pandemic? We did see a little blip at the beginning of the year in January and February, both in Tunisia and Algeria, with relatively heightened numbers of irregular migrants apprehended by national authorities there, close to 820 irregular migrants apprehended by Algerian authorities, which is far above normal. In Tunisia, it was more around 200. And then for roughly three months, the situation went dark. And so because of COVID-19, because of movement restrictions that were implemented by national authorities in Tunisia and Algeria, and I think also because of concern amongst youth and the broader societies in Tunisia and Algeria that, in fact, Europe was struggling with a very serious pandemic and to go there actually would pose some risk to the migrants, there was effectively a cessation of irregular migration. And then in May, we started to see it pick up again. And it's only accelerated since then. It's unavoidable in looking at the situation to link it to the economic difficulties that have been caused by the the COVID-19 pandemic. The economic difficulties imposed by the pandemic have thrown large numbers of people out of work. And so within that view, the idea of getting to Europe now while people still have money in the bank versus later on when it might have been spent on basic subsistence is a decision many families are willing to take. And I think that it's something that we're going to be dealing with for really as long as the the COVID-19 pandemic and the associated economic difficulties continue to tear through the region. Surely governments in the Maghreb have also noted this rising trend in irregular migration. What's their position on this? I think you find national governments that are focused first and foremost on stability, on ensuring that you don't have wide-scale protests in the streets. Unofficially, they, they tacitly look at it as a safety valve. 
It deflates social tensions. It allows youth that otherwise would be heavily frustrated around limited job and livelihood prospects to search for those prospects outside of the country. At the end of the day, when it comes down to domestic political concerns and especially concerns around stability versus concerns as to how it's going to play in bilateral relations with European states, at the end of the day, North African states every time will come down on their domestic political needs. And I don't think that we should be surprised about that. Matt, what's the profile of the average North African irregular migrant attempting the journey to Europe? They tend to skew on the younger side, so 20s and 30s. Oftentimes, many of them are male, though certainly there is an increasing number of females and of families amongst Maghrebi migrants heading north. And I'd say that the education level tends to be mixed. You do find a large number of individuals who have secondary education, but also increasingly you find individuals that have university degree, if not further advanced education, that end up turning to irregular pathways in order to move north towards Europe. And I should say that for those with more advanced education, taking a boat north to Europe, crossing irregularly, is rarely the first attempt. Oftentimes, there are attempts to get to Europe via more formal pathways, via getting a job permit or a tourist permit. And really, these boats become the point of last resort. Who are the facilitators who enable this type of irregular migration? So it's rather interesting if you look at Tunisian irregular migration. First of all, because in counterpoint to a lot of the rest of North Africa, where you're seeing some movement right now towards self-smuggling or the employment by irregular migrants of the opportunity to, to access boats, to buy motors, to buy GPS units and smuggle themselves north without many smugglers involved. In Tunisia, it's very much still a smuggler's game. You find that smugglers tend to be very locally rooted in Tunisia with fairly small scale smugglers dotted up and down the coast, each catering to a small local area. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that the smugglers are only offering services to the individuals that are from that area, say, Bezert or Sfax or Seuss. Rather, they only operate in a small designated coastline and will offer their services to any Tunisians that are willing to travel to that area and able to find the, the sorts of facilitators and the types of connectors to the smugglers that are able to assist them in finding these smugglers' prices and, and getting connected. Is this something organized crime groups are profiting from? You do find, to some degree, that organized crime groups are profiting off of this. So the small-scale actors that I talked about in Tunisia, generally speaking, they can be considered organized crime, certainly. There are multiple individuals generally involved in each network, be it the captains of the vessels, the organizer of the trip, the individuals that are tasked with going out and finding migrants and signing them up. And even in some instances, those individuals within a smuggling network that are tasked with setting up safe houses and feeding the migrants that are there as they slowly build up the requisite number of individuals for a migration attempt to take place. But in terms of connection to transnational organized crime, the Tunisian smuggling networks, generally speaking, are not linked to a larger network. But we do see that in Algeria. We do see, for example, smuggling networks that are operating between central Algeria and the Balrock Islands in Spain, 
being connected on the Spanish side with Spanish organized crime groups that then take the migrants that arrive in the Balrock Islands and move them to the mainland. They provide them, in some cases, with documentation. They assist them in getting to the mainland. And in some instances, they assist them in getting not just to other destinations within Spain, but other destinations within Europe. But I think the really interesting connection and the classic connection we see between migrant smuggling and organized crime in North Africa is in Morocco. And there have been persistent reports over the last 20 years or so that the drug trafficking networks operating between northern Morocco and Spain, those networks that generally speaking move cannabis resin grown in Morocco's reef mountains over to Spain for the European consumers, that these have become involved in migrant smuggling to a degree. In some cases, offering space to migrants on smuggling vessels in exchange for some labor or assistance. In some cases, it seems that the individuals involved in drug trafficking have become more directly involved in migrant smuggling as kind of a a mainstay of a business. Now, these are, are very shadowy rumors. There's very little significant confirmation of this to flag. But it is an area that I think we need to look very closely at, especially as drug trafficking starts to increase across the Maghreb, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya, and especially between those Maghrebi countries and Europe, with, for example, Kiev smuggling now going on in a fairly dynamic fashion from Algeria to Europe, from Tunisia to Europe, especially from Libya to Europe. New media is playing an increasingly important role as a source of information for Maghrebi migrants. Popular social media channels on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and WhatsApp are being used to exchange information, connect, and bond over the prospects of migrating abroad. Do you think that we can race today or not? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the distance we should be. How many days now we are in jungle? This number four days. No, it's five. For me, it's five. What you've just heard is a clip from a YouTube video. Two migrants talking about their journey through the Darien Gap, Panama's perilous 100-kilometer passage of marshland, jungle, rivers, and mountains that connects South and North America. The video was made by Zuhir Bunu. He goes by the name Zizu. And for the past year, the Moroccan video blogger has been documenting his illegal journey from Morocco to the United States. Equipped with a smartphone and social media accounts, Zizou shares his adventures from country to country, offering advice to hundreds of thousands of fans hoping to follow in his footsteps. His vlogs offer entertainment, tips and tricks for would-be migrants, and, if nothing else, hope. He and others like him represent the changing face of irregular migration from the Maghreb. Here's Matt Herbert again. There are a couple different types of videos that are out there. You have videos produced by migrants that have arrived in Europe that are speaking directly to their peers still in Morocco and Algeria and in Tunisia, speaking about their lives in Europe, what they're able to do, speaking about the process of migration, how it is that they got from, say, uh, Meknes all the way up to Marseille, and really, to a degree, putting on an entertainment show. It's sort of reality TV with the irregular migrants acting as the MC. That's one type. 
And then you have another type of video that are largely showing the act of migration itself. So the ubiquity of smartphones, the easy access to internet-enabled phones, means that as migrants head north in boats, they can actually film themselves. And so you see a tremendous number of videos of small boatload full of men and sometimes women that are heading north. And I think that these, these two aspects kind of fuse together. We have to recognize that this is some of the most compelling reality TV for youth that otherwise have few salient entertainment options across the North African states. This sort of video are far more exciting to youth. They speak far more to an interest that youth have. They allow the youth to imagine themselves into the place of those they're watching on the video. Uh, demystifies the process of migration because of that. And I think greatly eases the decision of young men and women. They can imagine what their journey would be like. Do you think these videos have directly or indirectly influenced the surge in irregular migration coming out of North Africa? They've expanded out the opportunity to find out information on ways to migrate. So they've made it easier and more available for migrants to get, in some cases, in contact with smugglers or understand the, the various smuggling options that are out there. I'd be very hesitant to ascribe the current surge to the videos themselves. However, I think the videos do play a very important role in the process of deciding to migrate versus stay at home and as well play an important role in how it is that migrants plot out their pathway north. It democratizes information on all salient factors of migration. Let's take a closer look now at the content of these videos, their value, and the vloggers behind them. For that discussion, here's Amin Khulidi, geopolitics researcher at King's College London and, for Wired, co-author of On YouTube, Vloggers Are Teaching People, how to migrate illegally. I'm a Moroccan American living in the United States who feels a need to connect a little bit with home. And in the absence of any communication infrastructure, no, no TV channels that I have accessible here in Washington, D.C., I naturally log into social media to read about news from back home. So on YouTube, I once stumbled upon video by a Moroccan YouTuber turned influencer who was living in Paris and recording videos in the streets of Paris, him interviewing various members of uh, the Moroccan diaspora as they stumble upon each other in the streets of Paris. And that specific brand of vlogging was particularly entertaining because it really captures the experience of a young migrant, unaltered, raw, uh, mixed with humor and wit, completely uncensored. So on one hand, it's entertainment for audiences back home in North Africa. But are these videos actually influencing migration dynamics? There are videos that share very super operation information. I've seen videos of people sharing coordinates of specific crossing points from Turkey into Greece. I've seen videos where people discuss prices and fees paid to smugglers and the best crossing points under the circumstances of the time. I've seen comments updating that knowledge, people correcting mistakes that were mentioned in the videos and conversations taking shape in the comment section. And I think that's really the interesting aspect because videos are static, comments are not. Live streams are particularly interesting because that is an opportunity for those content creators to actually engage directly with their followers. And many people ask operational questions. Do the vloggers see themselves as doing something illegal? It is a gray area. I 
assume that many of these content creators are not necessarily well-versed in legal matters. Their engagement through social media is one of connection. It's a way of fighting loneliness and isolation. We know migration is a very lonely endeavor. So having a community is a very connecting way these people find to take themselves out of that isolation. Let's talk specifically about the Moroccan vlogger Zizou. His videos have gained millions of views on YouTube and he has more than 100,000 followers across social media platforms. Has he become the YouTube celebrity of this irregular migration social media ecosystem? Zizou is a, a unique case because he uh, took a very daring journey across Latin America, 10 countries, to make it to the U.S.-Mexican border. Crossing those 10 countries, he made sure that he captured every nitty-gritty of that experience. I, as a consumer myself, I found extremely entertaining. And that's actually one aspect of these videos, is entertainment. They offer an entertainment value that captures the viewers. I know for a fact that Zizou's vlogs are watched not only by the youth, but by adults, actually, who end up finding an entertainment value in that type of content that is not available in your standard TV show. In the way that his videos are packaged as a live telenovela full of adventure, do you think this might be misleading as far as the reality and the dangers of the migration journey are concerned? Actually, in fact, people like Zizou are much more nuanced in how they approach the migration experience. I mean, Zizou has produced himself some videos where he explicitly tells people, please do not follow in my footsteps. Let's listen again to a clip from one of Zizou's videos. How many days you are in jungle now? This is the sixth day. Sixth day. How do you sixth feel? Day. How do you feel? My bones are all broken, man. Yeah. And um, it's not what they told me. Maybe some people just want to make money from us, you know. And they don't they don't say the truth. And we come in here, the condition, in fact I can describe this place like a dead trap, you know. Mm. This forest is a dead trap, wild animals intense and adverse conditions you have to live in, walk in. Later in the video, you can hear Zizou saying he and his group of migrants discovered two dead bodies during their journey. No, say the throat, how many? No, we saw, we saw two, we saw two, but others saw another. One woman whose limbs were dissected was possibly killed by gangs, snakes drowning in the river. The migrants wanted to bury her, but the limbs were in such bad shape that moving her body was impossible. The second body was a man found dead in the jungle. His throat was cut and was found lying in the place that he usually slept. Zizu was so shocked that he could say nothing but Allah Akbar, God is the greatest. What are your thoughts, Amin? Zizu could be seen capturing a, it's the shock insight of a dead body of a fellow migrant from sub-Saharan Africa who was basically left behind after it was alleged that she drowned. And the rawness of that experience and the reaction of Zizou, you could hear his voice breaking, you could hear him talking using religious language. Embedded within that reaction that Zizou had is a cry for people not to follow in his footsteps. At one point, Zizou is seen talking to a sub-Saharan African woman sitting with her young child. It's so hard. It's so hard to see this beautiful girl with this boy in this uh, jungle. It's so hard. I swear, I can't. I can't handle that. Allah. You understand what I said? Okay. 
Hello, uh, my name is Natasha. I'm actually a musician, but you know, looking for So now I am in the booth on my way to you, hoping to, you know, to, 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 to have the opportunity and, and see if I can be part of the people that will make things to change, but I'm not sure. I don't know. What do you think journalists, researchers, NGOs and policymakers should take from these videos? I would rather have an irregular migrant who feels connected, not isolated, to a larger community who is willing to share his experience openly than not. I think the value of the videos that people like Zizo and others share is extremely important for researchers and for development organizations that work on migration. If you have seen the video that Zizu captured inside the jungle and saw the tragedy of him with several other migrants, many from sub-Saharan Africa, including underage kid, a mother, who is talking about the tragedy of migration. Unless you're embedded in that environment, that specific imagery is impossible to capture. And so I think there is a value for that content. Are you suggesting that these videos expose a more nuanced perspective on the thoughts and desires of youth in the Maghreb? North Africa as geographic unit is very close to each other, culturally, linguistically, a little bit politically as well, but physically the boundaries are quite rigid. We take, for example, land borders between Morocco and Algeria are closed since 1994. This has a true impact in terms of cooperation and how to address this phenomenon. The online space is borderless. And so there's a lot of cross-fertilization and a lot of exchanges happening at that level between Moroccans, Tunisians, and Algerians. It's amazing to see the level of, I would call, brotherhood between Moroccans producing content and Algerians producing content. These symbols show that there is a much much deeper connections and exchanges happening above and beyond the political boundaries that have been established. Where is Zizou now? And is he aware of the impact that he's having across North Africa? It's a truly a miracle that he made it through unharmed to Mexico after encounters with various organized crime, dangerous territories, wildlife, law enforcement. He made it to Mexico. He made it all the way to the U.S.-Mexican border, then had an epiphany. I think he realized that he didn't fully understand the difficulty. Of and so he changed his plans. Now he's exploring exclusively legal ways to make it to the U.S. or to any other country where he thinks he's actually able to have a fresh start. I think it's the realization once you reach that almost final destination and see the task ahead and the dangers of it, he realizes that maybe this is not the best way to go. That was Amin Khulidi, geopolitics researcher at King's College London and for Wired, co-author of On YouTube, Vloggers Are Teaching People How to Migrate Illegally. As the saying goes, for some, the failures of governments, the economic consequences of COVID-19 and the calmer waters of the Mediterranean present an opportunity to take to the boats and seize the dream. And for those who stay, Zizou's adventurous tales continue to fuel a social media ecosystem where entertainment and practical migration information foster an unlikely source of hope and regional brotherhood.
That's it for this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy. The YouTube clips you heard come from Zuhir Bunu's YouTube page. Search for Zizu Vlogs for more. A big thank you to our guests, Matt Herbert and Amin Rolidi. Next week, we'll be focusing on the illicit economy in East and Southern Africa. To learn more about the topics covered in this episode, head over to the GI's website, www.globalinitiative.net. While you're there, feel free to check out some of the GI's other publications. It's a never-ending source of content that is sure to pique your interest. You can also find last week's podcast on emerging illicit industries in the wake of COVID-19. You'll hear from us again in two weeks. Until then, this podcast was produced by Alexandria Sahai-Williams. I'm Lindim Tongana. Thanks for listening. During the 21st century, thousands of criminal assassinations have occurred worldwide. They produce a butterfly effect of trauma locally, nationally, regionally, and globally. Despite these efforts to silence, criminal assassinations can be a source of hope and community resilience. He had a fire in him. He couldn't stand corruption, and he wouldn't stop after exposing it. She was such a force of nature that when I first met her, I came away a bit shaken, a bit intimidated. He was a very pleasant, modest and humble person who dreamt about a time when all criminals would pay for their deeds. She taught us the fear paralyzed actions of the people. We will never give up, even if we got killed, even if they murder us. They didn't die. They multiplied. Thousands of brave souls have paid with their lives because they refused to tolerate criminal governance. In 2019, the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime commissioned approximately 50 profiles of persons assassinated across the world under the Faces of Assassination project. These profiles highlight places where organised crime has permeated political, cultural and economic sectors of society. Check out our website and join the campaign.